This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. I'm not sure if you've seen this yet, but Helix just published the Enrollment Growth Playbook, the largest collection of adult enrollment growth strategies ever released to the industry, outlining how Helix grows their partner's enrollment eight times faster than the industry average. From determining growth opportunities to designing a marketing strategy, streamlining enrollment operations, solidifying a retention approach, and leveraging technology and data intelligence, the Enrollment Growth Playbook is an institution's step-by-step roadmap to adult student enrollment success. And you can download it today for free. Just visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. And hello and welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. My name is Kevin Carey. I direct the education policy program here at New America. I am joined by newly promoted Libby Nelson of Vox.com. Libby just told me her new title, but I've forgotten it already. Libby, what is your new title? Associate Editor for Policy and Politics. Congratulations. Thank you. Well deserved. Uh, your empire is growing over at Fox.com. Literally every month on this podcast, I'm like, never mind, I'm doing something different now. Uh, but this this one comes with a new title, so hopefully it sticks. So are you are you managing people now? I'm, you- I am helping manage the team and the coverage uh, for all things, both policy and politics, okay, well, uh, in- including uh, some writing, including some education writing. Congratulations, so. condolences, as I say, <laughs> to anyone who moves into management. Um, <laughs> and we are very fortunate today to have a special guest. Um, we have on the line uh, Tracy McMillan Cottom, uh, a professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University and the author of Lower Ed, a brand new book on for-profit higher education. Uh, welcome, Tracy. Hi, guys. And you are joining us on the phone. You're our first uh, phone co-podcaster. So this is a new format for us. Well, I do like to encourage learning everywhere I go. So this is just your turn. We'll, well learn how this works. This is distance learning. Um, yeah, that's right. Information technology, something I'm <laughs> always in right. favor of. I understand that it's going to transform and disrupt, Kevin. And it's going to do both those things. It's happening right now. Um, absolutely. That's what's going to happen. Um so uh, I had a chance to read the book. It's fabulous. Congratulations. It really Thank is. A, it's a, I think it's an important contribution um, to a really interesting topic, um, one that probably will continue to be interesting. Mm-hmm. All signs point in that direction. Um, yes, they do. Why don't you just start by telling the reader kind of what, uh, how you came to write this book and what you were trying to do, um, what, what your goals were, and, and uh, start us there. Sure. Well, first of all, I did not want to write this book. It would have been much more helpful for me if this book had already been written when I was trying to do my dissertation. All right. So that's the first thing I think we maybe need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the book, however, had not been written, it was very difficult for me as I was trying to sort of follow this line of conversation to do this research. So uh, the book comes out of things that I thought were kind of self-evident to me, like they were just the sort of standard set of questions that we had always asked about higher education. And I was really uh, confused about why we hadn't asked those questions yet of for-profit higher education. And so as a sociologist, those questions are things like, um, what is the role of inequality in some social phenomenon? How does race, class, and gender work here? Or um, what does this mean? How, do, how does this contribute or shape what we understand about how societies work? Like we hadn't asked what are just really sort of our bread and butter questions uh, in sociology about for-profit higher education. And because we hadn't really asked those um, more seriously, I thought that our conversation about for-profit colleges was being uh, limited and constrained in some really important ways. Um, So the the book was about hopefully making an intervention in that conversation, Mm -hmm. which at the point that I started writing this book, um, the conversation was basically understand as having like two sides, right? So on the one side, for-profit colleges were the sort of ultimate manifestation of um, um, transformation and innovation in higher education, right? It understood its student in ways that traditional colleges did not. It offered a real practical program in contrast to the, you know, fuzzy uh, woo-hoo-hoo up in the clouds, humanities or whatever education. It was practical. It was valuable, et cetera. Then on the other side of that uh, conversation was a side that said, no, these things were predatory. And by extension, uh, the students in them were prey. They were, quote unquote, low information, which was which is economic speak for, you know, the students don't know any better. Um, And these uh, institutions were preying on the vulnerabilities of millions of people. 
Um, neither one of those were really satisfying for me, in part because I had firsthand experience working in for-profit colleges. And so I had dealt with students who were neither low information nor innovative early adopters. Um, I knew that no matter who was in the for-profit college system, um, whether the person enrolling you was predatory or not really actually didn't matter um, nearly as much as people were saying that it did, right? These were just sort of bad actors in the sector, for example. Um, So all of that drove me to say, well, then why do we understand it this way? And again, that led me to, oh, we haven't asked the questions about how this whole thing works and how it's connected to other things. Um, And so that's why I wrote the book, not to end that conversation, by the way, truly, seriously, to start it. I think there are probably 50 other ways this conversation could go. But kind of like me trying to write my dissertation, I felt like this, this book or this argument had to be written first so that some of these other conversations could hopefully happen. And I realize I've actually already neglected the crucial first step of my hosting duties, which is to introduce the drink we're having. We really do drink here on the Higher Ed Happy Hour. Um, well, you told me that, and that's the yeah. part that actually technology cannot transform no. or innovate. No. Because One it did not things. deliver unto me. No, we did not digitally give you uh, uh, the drink that we're having. So we're drinking hot toddies today. It is a you know bleak weather, existentially kind of uh, early March afternoon. Um, so this was Libby's suggestion, Libby's. Uh, coming off the flu, not that you could tell. Um, <laughs> and with the, I will try not to cough in the microphone too and much. And with the help of uh, John Williams, our executive producer here, and also uh, uh, the drink master uh, here at New America oh. and elsewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. John is expert in many, many things. Um, he has a whole uh, library of drink ingredients that he's kind of helped us out with. So so we're having hot toddies. And are you are you going with bourbon and coffee and on your end? Is that with your email? Yeah, that's what I've got. Good. I've got okay. a selection of bourbons here, and Great. I have coffee on hand all the time. So sort of a hot toddy, except with a shot of caffeine. Okay. That sounds perfect. I should say I read your book while I had the flu, and I did not fall asleep, which is really like the highest. You should put that on the cover. That is the highest blowback you can give. I certainly should. Um, It's on the record. That's a good. That's a good one sentence blurb for the paperback edition. Especially. Did not fall asleep while having the flu. Um, You you mentioned your experience at at uh, working at a for profit college, which I think is one of the more powerful things about the book, and and you do a great job of kind of weaving in and out of that. Um, So in some ways, it's both. a personal story and a a sociological investigation of for-profit colleges. And there's a great line, I think it's the the end of the first paragraph of the book, um, where you say, uh, you met a man uh, named John who had a big impact on your life, and you hope that he didn't have a, you hope that you didn't have a big impact on his life. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, So, I mean, you know, Jason was a real person Jason. and I actually had told the story about him many times mm-hmm. over the years, like to friends, you know, right. et cetera. Like truly for me, uh, dealing with Jason um, was the moment that sort of primed lots of changes in my own life. And so I, he's sort of like the the hinge point on my before and after life. Right. Um, and I don't know that that's because there was anything particularly um, you know, special about Jason or our interaction, except that it came at the right time at the right moment. And I was of when I was starting to ask some questions about what we did there at the technical school. Um, you know, Jason was like a lot of the students who came to see me, um, especially there at the technical college. He's a, a youngish white male married to this adorable little wife and they would always come together. Um, and maybe that was part of it. You know, he really did see his decision-making as not being just, a, you know, about his individual life chances. Like from the outset, I remember him saying, you know, all the students would say something about like sort of, you know, changing their life or getting a better job. His truly was, I want to set my family up, right? So he was already thinking about, you know, what this would mean to any future children they had and sort of being the financial bedrock for their family. And I think there was something about that that really um, resonated with me um, and how much for them this was a decision they were making as a family because they came together all the time. And they also just felt really familiar to me. They were from the same place that I was from. We'd grown up in somewhat similar circumstances. Um, He'd gone to a high school that I knew intimately, right? And that I used to play, Our high, the high school I attended used to play his in sports. And so we laughed and joked about that. Um, and there was also something else about him. He was devoutly religious, right? And I um, have thought often that that probably really did um, 
benefit him through the for-profit college enrollment process, which I describe in the book as a very rapid, fast process, right? You can go from the first point of contact to being an enrolled student in 24 hours. Um, and, and it's designed to go that fast, right? For many reasons. Um, uh, some of it, a significant uh, uh, reason is that it's tied to the revenue stream of the university, right? You don't become a revenue stream until you're enrolled because it's not until you're enrolled that you can sign up for federal student aid. Um, and so getting you to that point was was vital to the health of the of the institution because we needed to convert you from prospect of um, uh, revenue generating uh, student as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and for someone like Jason, who had had negative experiences in K through 12, as many of the students that I talked to had um, and for middle class people, this is sort of kind of hard sometimes to wrap our brains around. But not all of us enjoyed school, you know. <laughs> and so if you have sort of any lingering negative experiences of, of school writ large, you approach college with a lot of trepidation. And that was true of Jason. I suspect he had a learning disability. He described it as just not being very good at book learning. Um And so hadn't done very well in high school. He was surprised that he was even sort of allowed to enroll in the uh, technical college because he had expected not to clear, you know, any admissions criteria, which should suggest to us that he didn't know that there weren't any admissions criteria. Right. Mm -hmm. The only criteria for enrollment was the the willingness to enroll and the willingness and ability to pay. Um, And I think but every sort of step along the enrollment process, it went a little more slowly for Jason because he and his wife insisted on praying over every decision that they made. (laughs) And unlike sort of everything else that we had sort of been trained to um, to be able to counter, you know, roadblocks to enrollment, I didn't have an answer for praying. And in fact, I'm I'm from the South. You don't get in the way of prayer. Right. Mm -hmm. So every time he'd say to me, well, we need to pray on this. I would go, "Okay, fine by me. It, <laughs> go pray. But what that ended up doing, too, was slowing down his process and I think creating much uh, far more points for him to think and to change his mind than is typical of the enrollment process at for-profit colleges. And I think because of that, it was very hard for us to kind of close him his financial aid process uh, as well. And so I'm sitting in the meeting with him and his in the for-profit uh, college financial aid counselor when, you know, like on the second or third attempt to get him to complete his federal uh, financial aid paperwork. And he needs someone who's willing to co-sign on an additional loan for him to meet the uh, tuition obligation at the school. And the only person he knows of in his family who would qualify for the credit underwriting criteria was an elderly aunt. Right. Who was on Social Security. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if he can't afford like if he has to go that far in his family relations to sign the co-sign the loan, he can't afford this. Right. right? Yeah. But that uh, that got you in trouble with your boss. Right. Slowing down the process. That is correct. That's right. Um, because, again, it is set up to be rapid. Right. Um, uh, and so she made a big show of how she could close Jason when I couldn't. Uh, and my very last day, the day I decided to walk away from that job, it was because I saw Jason sort of making some decisions um, in that federal in that financial aid meeting um, that made it clear for me that there wasn't a winning scenario, right? That this wasn't going to go well for him, even if it went well. And that started to call into question for me the idea of whether all education was good education, because I had been raised like many people to believe that it was. Um, And here I was starting to have doubts about whether or not that was true. Um, And so I don't know what happened. I get this a lot. I don't know what happens to Jason. Don't know if he ever really went back to finish the enrollment process or whether or not he attended um, the technical school. Um, I left him a message on my way out the door when I knew I was walking away from the job, encouraging him to contact the local community college. I gave him a name and a phone number there um, and I walked away. And so, yeah, I say in the book that I really hope that in meeting me at the technical school that I had not changed Jason's life because chances are good that I would have changed it for the worse. One thing I, I really liked about your book is that I have sort of been in the for-profit conversation from this very like narrow regulatory point of view for the past like six to eight or however many years it's been. And, <laughs> and this was like a much like more 50. like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, this is like a much more like you gave this much more I think, interesting and complicated sort of structural way of talking about how for-profit colleges are in some ways a response to broader changes in the economy and and in work and inequality. And I'm hoping you can sort of 
expand on that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so I think one of the things, or I hope one of the things um, that comes out of that argument is that what's happened that creates, you know, um, you know, demand among millions of people for a for-profit college credential is happening to all of higher education. The extent to which it's true, however, for your institution is really just about how much prestige you have of really prestige and endowment. But those are really probably the same thing. And, you know, you're when you're dealing with the sort of, you know, total end of that extreme, you're at the for profit college sector. But there's no part of higher ed that isn't touched by this to some degree. And for me, that question is this. We've got sort of this narrative out about, you know, everybody becoming lifelong learners. Right. And now that would be great if by lifelong learners, we meant like autodidactic learning, you know, um, following your interests, your passions, et cetera. But that's not really what we mean. What we mean is for people to continue to stay suitably skilled for the labor market. Right. Um, and the only way we really kind of know how to do that is to give people credentials because we got to have a way to say you actually know the thing that you know. And unfortunately, we don't have we haven't come up with any other way. So that means lifelong learning, a way to translate that, given the circumstances of how we work and go to school, is that people are going to have to cycle in and out of college repeatedly over their life course. Now, for for for-profit college students, that has just come sooner for them because they are either in jobs or parts of the labor market that were more, more vulnerable to those changes. And those changes are all the things we probably know if we ever scan the front page of a newspaper, right? It's, uh, you know, um, broadly, it's about the effects of globalization, more competition for jobs, automation, meaning that there are fewer, you know, um, middle skill jobs that provide sort of middle income. Um, and then there are more sort of bad jobs, fewer good jobs. It gets harder and there's more competition for the good jobs. Well, everybody's sort of feeling that. But I think the people who went to a for-profit college felt them earlier, sooner and deeper. Uh, but the challenge of that is really the challenge for all of higher education, which is how do we train people for something like that? How do we credential and certify people for this sort of constant cycling through and out? We weren't designed and set up for that. And our federal student aid system wasn't set up to pay for that. Uh, and those are the tensions that we're really seeing show up in the for-profit college sector. And if we can't kind of solve that problem, come up with a solution for it, I suspect we'll all be dealing with the problem uh, more broadly later on. And you you introduced this idea of the uh, the education gospel in mm-hmm. your book. And there was a sentence that kind of struck me where, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but... Um, Something to the effect of it's the prestigious institutions that actually establish mm-hmm. and reinforce the gospel, right. and then That's it's right. the for-profit institutions that depend on it for their profitability. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about right. that? Okay. Exactly. That we're all part of this, that um, that you can't have lower ed if you didn't have higher ed, right? And that is because higher ed legitimizes the education gospel, which I borrow from um, economists, believe it or not. Forgive me. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You're forgiving. <laughs> William Grubb and Eric Glazerson. Yep. Yeah, my apologies. <laughs> uh, but, but I really liked it because it was sort of getting at the contradictory nature of that, right? So we talk, the education gospel is basically the idea of social mobility, but it's specific case for education, which in our country means go to college to have a good life, right? We have so tightly coupled those two things that it's not just about being have a good economic life anymore. It's about being a good, moral, upright citizen and person, right? So all of that's wrapped up in go to school, go to school, go to school, which is the, you know, people have critiqued sort of the college for all ethos. And that's really, I think, what they're talking about, right? This idea that everybody should go to college, except I would argue that it's maybe a little bit more broad than what they argue, um, which is that we all are susceptible to it. And it's not just about our economic viability. But again, I think this is moral, ethical component to it. Um And traditional higher education benefits from that, right? It's why we don't have to do one of the big uh, differences we talk about between not-for-profit and for-profit colleges is uh, how much for-profit colleges advertise and market, for example. Well, traditional higher education, it isn't that we're more ethical. It's just that we haven't had to market in the same way. Yet. Because, Because we benefit from the idea that people, good people, go to college. And we just wait to receive those good people, Right. Um, what for-profit colleges have had to do, however, is to overcome the fact that the types of students that they would most likely recruit aren't as um, 
aren't as uh, acculturated to the education gospel as like middle-class people are, right? They have some sense that education is good, but they're not so deeply enmeshed in it that they kind of know how to do that process. So for-profit colleges have had to work harder through marketing and um, advertising in that way. But it's not that they're necessarily less ethical. It's that, again, they don't totally benefit in the same way from the education gospel. But the one way that they do benefit is that once people know about the school, almost everybody stops asking critical questions because we don't have a language that says there could be a negative education choice. Right. Right. And because of that, for-profit college students are perfectly rational when they don't ask. I, you know, I love these sheets that some people in policy circles, not that y'all know any of them, <laughs> have that this idea that people sit down with spreadsheets to make their education choices. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, I've never seen that. Right? <laughs> the cost-benefit analysis is more emotional than that. Most people are just kind of going along that once they've chosen a school or become aware of a school, they default to the same assumption. All school is good school. Well, that's the education gospel and for-profit colleges benefit when their students assume that. Yeah, one of, one of the things I really liked and found interesting was the ex- the examination of what students think about their school and, and mm. the, the idea, which we, we sort of knew and, and had been studied before, as you said, that like for-profit is not a category that resonates with a large mm-hmm. group of people. Right, yeah. So, you know, like what – what did you was there anything that that surprised you or that you found particularly insightful when you were looking at that angle of the question about why people don't know yeah why why people don't know or how people mm-hmm. sort of think about think about these schools outside of the higher ed world oh yeah there so there were a couple of things one was that even though i was um, deliberately, for the record, talking mostly to students who physically attended a for-profit school because I was trying to tease apart the things that were about being online as opposed to being for-profit, right? Because I was interested in the institutional type, not just not the delivery method. Um, uh, what I found interesting is that even though they were attending on campus at least part of the time, so many students call their school an online school. Yeah, right. that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> And I was just like, did, but did they mean go, that they like advertised online? I mean, I was curious what they like. How yeah, they? I, I think it's a combination of that. And but you know what I think they were saying when they said that? I think they were saying that they knew it was different, and maybe even different in a cool way, right? Mm-hmm. Like they were like, "This is how people do school now," as one guy told me. Um, and then so I think they just sort of think of technology as cutting edge, maybe. And so online is kind of part of that, maybe. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, f- I found that fascinating. And again, spoke to the fact that almost all of the interventions we have designed assume that people know what we're talking about. Can you imagine if we've been putting out stuff that says for-profit colleges might leave you indebted and people are like, what's a for-profit college? Then it's been useless. Um, and I, th- I found many students who, who conflated for-profit with private. So and from that, when they would do that, then it's to the benefit of the for-profit college, because until the mid-1990s, every private school, for the most part, was thought to be better, right? A private school was also happened to be the ones that tended to be the most prestigious. So um, they would call it either online or private and go, well, what? yeah, private schools are different than, you know, Georgia State down the street kind of thing. Um, the only person who used the word for-profit with me had been in the military, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I think um, you I actually say job. I think you actually say that that like in your time working at first the beauty school and then the technical institute that that, that phrase never came up once, and it was oh, even no. something that you didn't even really start to think of until yeah your second job. Like it just wasn't That's your right. frame of reference it's at all. Not in any of the training like materials, right? Mm-hmm. If you go through and you look at all the marketing materials that they give you when you go and visit a school, it's nowhere there. The closest I have found is that, you know, the little disclaimer that they have to put because of um, uh, uh, um, uh, gainful regulations where they have to put the job, the placement statistics. Mm -hmm. They have a small um, uh, addendum that says, you know, um, disclose because career college, something to that effect. But I think they, I remember them using career college, right? right? So the language of for-profit college, certainly you're not going to get it from the for-profit college itself. Uh, And then there's nothing really outside of that that would ever train you on what that means. I never heard it when I was working in either of the for-profits. Even when at the technical school, they did a lot of work on making sure we understood the regulatory environment because they had been um, uh, found guilty before, you know, been fined before. 
before. So there was lots of training us on what we could and couldn't say, what words we couldn't say. But there was never they never told us why we couldn't say them. Right. <laughs> that for-profits were regulated differently because they never said that we were for-profit. And so, yeah, if you're not going to get it from many of the students who are attending for-profit college, especially the poorest students, that person that they meet at the for-profit college who does the job <laughs> that I once did becomes their only counselor on school, their only point of contact for finding, for understanding college. And if that person either doesn't know or isn't required to discuss what those prestige differences are between not-for-profit and for-profit, many of those students will never know that there's a difference. You examine some of these interesting distinctions using um, an interview with a, a, a man that you met in the parking lot of Lenox Mall. In- <laughs> yes. Just chanced upon. Um, yes, it's and, called, it, it would be stalking if we were dating, but since it was research, it right. was totally acceptable. It was uh, and uh, opportunistic, opportunistic uh-huh. fieldwork. Let's call uh-huh. it that. That is um, correct. Uh-huh. Um, and he had, he was a uh, he had a bachelor's degree. He was a graduate of uh, Morehouse uh, College, right. um, and but he was also enrolled in the Strayer University MBA program, and and mm-hmm. I, it was it, it was an interesting way I thought to to in someone else's voice, have someone mm-hmm. kind of talk through right. this variation and, and like understanding both the kind of classic but also economic ways of, I'm probably not saying this the right way. Well, you go ahead and say it. Um, no, no, I think you're right on, which was, so one of the reasons why Mike is great is one, he was a talker. I'll just be honest with you, right? You know, you've done these sort of interviews before. Some people are better at that than others, right? So there's some people where I had to like pull something out of them. And then you meet somebody like Mike who is happy to talk, has all the words in the world. And if you just let him go, you know, he'll go. Um, So that was part of it because he was so willing to engage any question. And um, even when he couldn't articulate the differences, he was committed to like trying to say something, right? Mm -hmm. So, and because of that's, you know, that's wonderful for a qualitative researcher because it gave me all this stuff to try to figure out how he was making sense of things through his language. Um, and yeah, so he's he's interesting because he was one of those who said, you know, granted he was attending online, but he was the one who thought the main distinction between Morehouse and Strayer was that it was online as opposed to on campus. He used the language that lots of students used who had had um, any exposure to, to, to traditional college, which is he called the traditional college real college, right. real college. Um, nobody ever said the other was fake, but I did think it was interesting that they thought of this is real college. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, I've already been to a real college. So it's fine that if I don't go to a real one again, you know, to get another credential. Um, and the incentives had really been put in place for him, which is why I also tried to explore there uh, the differences between the institutions. There were lots of incentives for the uh, to help him, to encourage him to make the decisions that he made. And that's not entirely the fault, as I hope I point out, of for-profit colleges, that some things have happened on both sides and things are happening outside of the colleges themselves that make one or the other of these colleges perfectly rational for some people. Yeah, I think he says at one point, well, look, I'll always be a Morehouse man. That's like, right. So that's already established. Yeah, and so therefore right. it's it makes sense for me to take this very different point of view on my relationship with mm-hmm. Strayer and and you know he was very practical in the sense that he yep. he he needed money for actually completely uh, uh, different purposes and mm-hmm. also thought that it would be good for him to have an MBA uh, after That's his right. after his name the letters after his name he was yeah. the one who said it the most sort of emphatically but I actually heard some version of that from several people that I envy right you gotta have some letters after your name which is just literally people living credential credentialism right they're literally saying I survey the world very accurately. And I realize that some people who have letters after their name, people respond to them differently. And it, it it looks to me like when people respond to them differently, that comes with some rewards, better pay, better work, et cetera. It makes perfect sense that I, too, would get some letters after my name. Um, one of the things he said that I really loved, he said, you know, the thing is, when they put those letters after your name, he was talking about on a name tag. Mm-hmm. He said, when you put those letters after your name, nobody ever writes where they came from. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I also right. do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the the publicly traded the big publicly traded companies really seem to feed off of the credentialism. And I, I, one thing I thought was interesting was that you also wrote about the beauty school you worked at and a little bit about like the the for profit universe is a lot broader than just the big publicly traded mm-hmm. ones. Like what are what are those cultural differences uh, that that you noted and that that have an impact here? 
Yeah. And in fact, it was uh, trying to understand why these two places where my experiences of them have been quite different in like some meaningful ways and worked with, you know, two sort of different groups of students. Um, why, however, they were all part of the same thing. Like I was actually trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. So the technical college in the book absolutely represents, as you said, the shareholder for profits. And I think that's a particular relationship to like profit and revenue. And, and they organized the whole college around that. Um, the beauty school does represent, which is the part of the sector that is still the majority of those who attend a for-profit school, right? They are attending because they need a specific credential, usually for a regulated non-professional job. Right. Right. So uh, mechanics, uh, cosmetology, um, HVAC, you know, et cetera. My favorite one of those, by the way, is one that is uh, located where I'm from in Charlotte, North Carolina, which you can get certified to do NASCAR automatic. Um, okay, so it's an, an all-male, all-male <laughs> yeah. crew school? Yeah, yeah that, that like, was my right. favorite one, by yeah. the way, because I thought, talk about a market niche, right? right. Um, and it doesn't get much cooler than that. So the people around there even had on the like the suits with all the badges on them oh, and right. whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, actually. Um, So the beauty school represents that. And while we certainly were for profit, right, I wanted to be honest about that. I think because that school had not gone through that financialization process um, where they were where they were required to pursue enrollment growth the same way that um, shareholder for profit colleges were, they did not while the enrollment process was still fast they did not have as many roadblocks to the students um, taking time out of the enrollment process as the technical school did, right? So for example, Jason and his praying um, was a problem at the technical school. At the beauty school, Jason praying would have been fine. People would have said, okay, yeah, go home and pray and talk to your family about it and let us know, right? Um, And I I actually do think that's quite different and we should acknowledge those differences. Um, Still, even at the beauty school, the way that inequality worked, it mostly worked in who showed up for those jobs. I mean, who showed up for that program. Um, So almost all women. And some of that was about the fact that it was cosmetology, sure. But some of it was also about the fact that um, uh, the, the program was fast, right? It was nine months long. Um, women, because they are usually primary caregivers, right, need, can't afford to take the same kind of time out of the labor market, right? They've got to they got to stay in it, and they got to get paid. They got to pay for childcare, etc. And I heard that so much from the women at the beauty school. They were also much more likely to be um, African American um, or some other version of non-white. Whereas I dealt with many more white students and men at the technical school. Um, and I also think that the, uh, you know, the the need for a credentialed non-professional job has something to do with that as well. Um, and those students, while almost all of the students that I dealt with had some problems navigating bureaucracy, the students at the beauty school had the most problems with bureaucracy. So I say those are the ones who were most vulnerable to the fact that community colleges were more complex organizations to deal with. Whereas those at the technical school were probably never going to be the students who were ever going to choose a a, um, community college. They were probably more likely to go to another open access or less selective public college. The ones at the beauty college really were students who maybe had, had they had more savvy about how to operate the bureaucracy, maybe would have gone to the uh, community college instead. There's a, a a woman who appears a little bit later in the book, and I'm forgetting her names because I forget mm-hmm. everyone's names all the time. So, so uh, um, but she, there's a, a line in there where she, I think she says to you, or you describe her, Every time she ran into problems oh, in her life, right. she went back to school. Right. And she had done this like four or five times. And yes. at one point it was a like a computer technical thing that she didn't even really mm-hmm. understand. And then it, I think at the point that you were talking to her, she was getting a nine-month medical assistant credential, which just right. like I have a personal obsession with the medical assistant. Um, yeah, we industry. should talk about the massage therapy really? part because, of the healthcare because, too. because it's like the ultimate education labor credential market failure. Like we're creating mm-hmm. – there's yeah. a huge industry in creating credentials that nobody wants that there you don't get in yeah. that no one needs and doesn't get you yeah. any money, right. and to the tune of anyway, don't get me started yeah. on medical yeah, assistant. Yeah. So I was that, like, no so medical I, assistant. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. But but so but here's my question. So because this gets a little bit back to how you were describing your book at the beginning, um, and the fact that we sort of live in this world where there's this expectation that people will need to be lifelong learners and, you know, quote, upskill, unquote, uh, uh, not, that's not your word, 
and then and then the for-profit industry uh, um, meets that need somehow. Um, so is it? I want to kind of dig into your critique a little more. Should it not be that way? Like, would it be okay if there were non-predatory? And we can talk also about whether that word is appropriate. Like better institutions, cheaper institutions, ones that that didn't have boiler rooms, that weren't publicly mm-hmm. traded, that were right. there to meet your needs. If you, if what you need is more skills, so you can get a better job. Right. Um, so that has been right the the play the sort of rightful place in the higher ed universe for for profit colleges for a really long time. I mean, you know, with some boom or bust sort of cycles. Um, one of the reasons why we've had for profit colleges for you know a hundred years is precisely for that reason that they obviously do serve some need. Right. What I'm questioning, though, Kevin, is to the extent is the extent to which that is still true, given how jobs work now. So, for example, I think that may have been more true of a place like so London is the person you're talking about. And London um, had gone to a place called Brookstone College of Business. Right. At some point in their life. And it was one of these where, first of all, College of Business, you know, what they really mean was it was a an an ungendered version of the old uh, secretarial schools. Right. So these people weren't doing like business plans. They were learning how to run like the office technology, how to write a business letter, et cetera. Um, Well, what is that job now? Right. Um, I think that would have made more sense in like 1970 when that was a stable job, when you maybe go get that training, you would need it once to sort of enter the labor market to get that first job. And then from there, you were sort of promoted within the organization or, you know, stayed with the organization for a long time. In that scenario, I think the less predatory, to use your words, for-profit schools made a whole lot more sense. What I'm wondering now, though, is that, and one of the things I was was thinking through as I was writing this book is the part of this that may not be the failure of for-profit colleges themselves, but the failure of the fact that it's still not a great solution if people have to constantly go back to a place like Brookstone to stay, you know, suitably skilled for what is a relatively uh, low status, sort of low wage job with little promotability, right? Um, and if that's what like the administrative assistant now is in our current, you know, world, then there may not be a good role for for profits in that anymore. Not because they're for profit, but because what they need to offer will have people cycling in and out too much, and uh, you know the excesses of being for profit will eventually show up. Um, Having said all of that, I do think like I can't come up with either a better solution for things like you need a plumber. And in fact, if you've ever needed a plumber, you know, that's not a small thing. Like plumbers are legit important. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know how else we Yeah, because it all falls apart when the toilet doesn't flush. Really? Everything. The whole society. Um, <laughs> if we do not have plumb, like I don't know a better way to do that. I'll be honest. I know that, you know, there are arguments about things like union colleges and those coming back. Listen, you know, that's not happening anytime in the next few years, as much as I would like to think that they could happen. And so I always say that in the short term, in these sort of um, regulated, um, you know, uh, blue collar jobs, um, that they still probably make sense. But for like the broader labor market, I just don't think that there's much of an argument in favor for them anymore, given how work works now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, and this is a book that is really more about describing the situation than prescribing solutions, and Kevin's was somewhat more about prescribing solutions. So I'm interested in what, what both of you think about, right. like, what what is the answer to this labor market, mm-hmm. this credential-obsessed, turning-over labor market that we have? The, the university of everywhere uh, is the answer. No, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm not, I mean, I'm sort of joking uh, because that was the subtitle of my book, but but mm-hmm. um, I mean there is a kind of I mean there's a there's a critique of the way our society and our economy is organized that I think is either implicit or in some ways explicit in the book, uh, where you talk about how there's been this shift of risk onto people um, and away from companies. Uh, but then you know my when I read about that, I think that's both true and really bad for the people. But I also don't really want to go back to a time when like, you would depend on a company to be supporting you in your income 45 years later. Like mm-hmm. that, that seems really risky to me also because the company could go away or it could be sold. Um, so then it implies a different set of governmental arrangements. Like, like, like is this all moot if we have socialism? 
or that is correct. Uh, okay. Is, is this building to a basic income? Is building to a basic income that, conversation? So, as all yeah, of my conversations they, um, lately do. Do they? <laughs> they do these days. I'm afraid, mm-hmm. although that worries me probably as much as anything else. At the point where we've got like, uh, you know. People from Facebook in favor of uh, basic income, I'm really worried. But it is true, I think, that whether or not the reliance is – here's the problem. You know, this becomes like this really big philosophical Mm -hmm. question. Let's do it. Yeah, it's what podcasts are for. <laughs> but that's because you've been drinking. Is a hot it okay, <laughs> half that, Dottie. Let's let's, yeah. Yeah, let's All right. Going. Okay, so it's whether or not you think that people um, perform best, right, when they are quote unquote empowered, right, to do their individual, you know, to um, self actualize and et cetera, et cetera, or whether or not people do that when they are embedded in something larger. The thing is, we got more evidence of the latter than we do of the former. There are always some people who do really well with the idea of, you know, quote unquote, being empowered and being the entrepreneur of yourself and, you know, going out there and navigating all the vicissitudes of the world on your own. The problem is that's not the majority of people. And so we've got to decide actually, yes, that if it's not going to be your employer, which to be to be clear, Kevin, I'm African-American and woman. I don't like the idea of relying on a company either because that did not work out so well for us. Um, So I totally am sympathetic to that argument as well. It may not need to be the employer, but I think what I do argue is that then it has to be something. And that's where I differ from people who I think see um for-profit colleges as a problem, but the individualization of social problems not as a problem, right? So they're like, you know, yeah, let's just regulate for-profit colleges into oblivion, but let's not address the fact that people actually aren't set up to do this thing we're asking them to do. Um, That there actually is some need for people to be embedded in something larger than themselves. And again, that's a philosophical um, um, argument, but that's just the one that I believe. And again, I don't see a whole lot of evidence of the one that, that that future that other people are proposing. I don't have a lot of evidence that that will go so well for folks. If you were uh, if in, in a different parallel universe in which we had more enlightened federal leadership than we have right now. Yeah, seriously. If you were giving— or On Earth 2. Yeah, on Earth 2 yeah. or 10 or whatever it is. Um, I mean, w- would you— uh, want to regulate for-profit colleges into oblivion if you knew that America wasn't going to become a Nordic welfare state anytime in the near future? Yes, only because I do think that there are enough incentives in place where the state would have to step in with something. It might not be something I would like, right? But at least when the state messes up, I've got a mechanism for, you know, for responding to that, right? Because it's the state. I can at least, you know, in theory anyway, if I'm not in a gerrymandered district or whatever, but in theory, at least, I've got a way to push back against their excesses and abuses in a way that I don't with a for, with a, um, um, a private um, for-profit company. And I, I, so for me, I would still probably do it if only for that reason. So Kind of getting to your question about entrepreneurialism, I'm going to go to my uh, my one real life experience uh, in a Nordic welfare state. So this is okay. this is my my my, <laughs> my seven junk- days. Did you go on a junket my to, junket Finland? to Finland? Oh it's the gift that keeps on giving. They I'm stopped gonna, the junkets okay. to gonna, Finland before I got to go, and I'm I've never been more this for the rest of my career. Uh, yes, I am. So uh, yeah, a, a while back I went on a, a junket paid for by the Finnish government to Finland. Um, it was me, um, uh, uh, your colleague, Matt Iglesias. I was say, were you and Matt uh, the same trip? Yeah. Uh, Dana Goldstein, now the education reporter for the New York Times. Uh, Sarah Mead, who's a, a higher ed expert, early ed expert for Bellwether. And uh, Doug McGray, who edits um, California Sunday Magazine now um, and does those pop-up magazine things. It would have been very bad for journalism if this plane had and, crashed. So oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you guys be, all made it. And Megan McArdle, Megan McArdle canceled at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> Megan Mercado was supposed to be there too, which would have made it a different trip if yeah. she had come along. But anyway, so we at one point, it was mostly we were looking at uh, early education in Finland because that was what Sarah wanted to look at. But they took us to a com- like the equivalent of a community college. Um, and I ended up in a classroom, um, all female. Um, it was, uh, they were, all the women were learning uh, essentially business math. The idea was that they were all going to own their own uh, hairdressing uh, uh, companies, you know, they were going to be sole proprietors. But the two things that were different, one was the community college was really nice. And you did not get this sense of like sharply differential prestige and class differences that you get in the United States because they don't really have classes in Finland the same way that they have them here. And the second thing was all of those 
entrepreneurs were also going to be part of a union somehow at the same time, which I didn't really understand, but totally blew, because 85% of all people in Finland are unionized or something like that. So it's just it, like, it made me think that there are maybe some creative uh, uh, combinations of called entrepreneurialism that, that aren't like really just a way of saying uh, you're on your own. And if you fail, right. it's because you're a bad person. And we owe right. you nothing, which is, I think, well, a lot of the American way of talking about it. It is. It absolutely is. So, you know, what's interesting to me. Well, a couple of things are interesting. Um, um, one that, yes, y'all were all on that plane together. That's interesting. <laughs> then the thing that's interesting to me is I've just been in, I read a few weeks ago, the Nordic theory of everything, you know, because oh, uh, it was one of those that everybody had to read. And so I try to stay with it. I read it. And so I'm now all caught up on all things Nordic. So I'm ready for this question. <laughs> Then, because <laughs> you only need one book, right? That's no, not how that good. works. I, then, I didn't need any books. I just went to Finland for five days. <laughs> that's it. That's but you've been, so yeah. you're good. Okay. Yeah. And so the third thing that I find interesting is I remember when I worked at the beauty school, um, we had data on how many of the students, where where the students were going upon graduation to work, right? Um, and this was at the time when uh, things like hair cutteries were popping up, you know, it become a chain. So like these large national haircutting chains, right? Um, so the idea is go and get a cheap haircut and they were always open, et cetera. So these, those things were happening. And so lots of our students have started going to work for those um, kinds of places, not earning too much more than minimum wage to be fair. Um, but even with the growth of like the haircuttery, I remember us saying once in the meeting, most of our students within like a year or two after getting their license from the beauty school would end up working for themselves, right? And I remember, oh yeah, like my aunt had been a cosmetologist and she too worked for herself, right? They, that, that, that had always been like the dominant labor arrangement in cosmetology, um, but we just didn't think of the women who did the did that as entrepreneurs. So it was always, you know, so it, I remember it pinging me as strange that, oh, yeah, I guess they are entrepreneurs. Right. They're running their own business, usually doing their own inventory and all that kind of stuff. And I remember um, going, oh, they can make more money. I remember I was telling them if they worked for themselves and if they did at the hair cuttery. But more of the students were going to the hair cuttery because it offered health insurance. Uh, OK. Mm. Yeah. That's our, so this gets me to the question of, I remember again from the one book I've read about the Nordic um, system, which is, yeah, if you if you can offshoot the other reasons that incentivize people to mm -hmm. take pretty bad work, people can actually make some better decisions that would ultimately reflect better on the credentials that they get. But the biggest one, for example, would be healthcare in the U.S., um, you know, trying to get your own health care on a slightly above uh, minimum wage salary, especially when your salary is variable because you are self-employed, um, as we know, is pretty difficult stuff. It might be getting more difficult. Right. Um, so, yeah, there might be a way to do entrepreneurship that one respects the fact that not every entrepreneur is making an app. Right. It's also like women who are cutting hair in Kansas, um, but also that they still, there are some things that, that, you know, that shouldn't rely on work and like healthcare is probably a big one. Yeah. I would actually recommend for any listeners who want to have interesting conversations about for-profits, everybody gets their hair cut somewhere. The, some of the most interesting conversations about like higher ed and occupational licensing and stuff I've had have been uh, at my hair cutting place. So mm -hmm. everybody ask your hair person, like where they went to school, how they made the I decision. I recommend that too. What actually. they learn. It's I've really interesting. Yeah, yep, I have also had that. Yep. And you, uh, it seems like in your book, you, a lot, I didn't realize this until I read it, that a fair amount of your research was talking to executives in mm -hmm. for-profit colleges. Yep. So, and they all, they, uh, I have a guess of how you think of them. Like, what did they think of you? Were they hostile <laughs> to your perspective? Did they see you as a, as a threat, as friendly? How did that go? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's a great question. Okay. Um, this is usually the kind of thing I really only ever tell my friends. Like, we know all about this stuff. Nobody's ever asked me this. Okay. So it was weird. I don't know if it's because I was a woman or because I was African-American, or you may not have noticed this ever about me, um, Kevin, but I'm short. <laughs> We have met, so, so I do know that. Yeah. I don't think right. of you as short. I've never yeah. met you. That is, I know. Yeah. It's and I because you never come to the higher ed working group. I'm, I'm coming next time. Okay. I promise. <laughs> okay, but it's important to me that you continue to think of me as tall, Libby. It's very All important. Right. Okay, so, I, but it was so strange. So I, I met many of the 
people who became like my respondents later on in the study at this conference that I had. And that's how I built these relationships that sort of, you know, rippled out as these things do of some people who were willing to talk to me. Um, once it became clear that they sort of trusted my judgment. And I do remember one guy telling me uh, when he finally agreed to speak to me that here's the thing, Tressie, I know we disagree on everything, but I just think that you're at least going to be fair. And I said, okay, right. I can, I think ultimately what most of them wanted was for somebody to tell them that they weren't bad people. Mm -hmm. And once they figured out that like, I really wasn't interested in saying, you know, so-and-so had stolen money from poor people or something that they were much more likely to talk to me. But also I just think I didn't read as, as intimidating once they met me. Now, before we met, I would get like these really sort of, you know, what we call where I'm from nice, nasty emails um, for for-profit college executives, you know, kind of wanting to tell me off a little bit. But I think that was more about them un- thinking that the way they felt about my writing was me intentionally making them feel that way. And then once we met, there was, you know, a lot of that would sort of, you know, level off a bit. Um, I also think uh, some of it was they were trying to play me a little bit, but that's fine, right? I had several people who thought they were speaking to me to sort of, you know, kind of control the narrative, Right. Um, and thinking that they, that would work with me. And in that case, again, I think maybe being a woman and a woman of color might have worked in my benefit. I think I was underestimated quite a bit in that regard. Um, so, you know, there was a little bit of schmoozing involved. And then every once in a blue moon, there was somebody who was trying to figure out how um, how open I was to being poached. Oh, mm. interesting. Via yeah. for-profit? Yes. Because you had worked particularly since you had worked yeah. with them before. And so they thought exactly. she wants yeah. to, hmm, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So apparently not as open as they had hoped. Right. <laughs> Although I really want this to get out. I could have been rich, man. So like, <laughs> I lived my morals, right? So make that like, make sure you tell people this. I lived my morals and values. Let it be known. We have a, right. we have a, a, a small but influential audience here on the Higher <laughs> Happy Hour podcast. Um, well, this is this has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, and the book is out now. Am I right in saying that? It is it available is. for purchase? It is absolutely out. Although I've not yet seen it in the wild. Um, I keep going to the bookstore and I can't catch it. But yes, it is out. You'll find it in the bookstore. Like if you go to a big chain, they, they stock all the education books. Yep. Um, I've never seen it like in the like with somebody reading my book. I, a few times people have seen it and like texted me, but I've never seen uh-huh. it personally. So seen I'm disappointed. It in person. I still want to, I have this fantasy that I'll be like on an airplane and I'll sit down next to somebody and they'll be reading it and be and would you, you know, say anything you know you yeah, gotta yeah. Do. oh yeah yeah okay. first, you something. gotta text us your birthday yeah. Yeah. that's all i'm saying make sure we know okay. what your birthday is in the next time you're on a plane okay all right we'll do that okay. but it's never happened for me so okay. so um, we'll see if we can change that for and you. do you have any events coming up that people might want to know about Oh, yes. Thank you for that. Um, uh, this week, there's lots of New York. Um, okay. I, uh, Wednesday night, if you don't mind seeing my head looking very large on TV, I actually do mind it, but I'm doing TV, which I don't look forward to. Mm-hmm. I think TV is really weird, but I'm doing The Daily Show Great. on Wednesday. What? That's um, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm very superstitious, so I won't, like, I'm not announced. It will, it will, it'll just happen, Okay. Uh, so that's Wednesday. Uh, I'm doing a couple of things uh, in New York and then I'm back to D.C. for like politics and prose and a couple other bookstores. Um, but like my schedule, I try really hard to keep it up to date with the help now of my wonderful graduate assistant, Olivia Pryor. Shout out to Olivia um, at TressyMC.com. I try to keep it updated. Good. Well, The Daily Show is not the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, but nonetheless, right. congratulations. Oh, it's all downhill. <laughs> that's, yeah, oh. right, that's awesome. Ask, ask, um, ask where your hot toddy is, because the last media appearance you did, they they offered you on right. over Skype. Right. And we set the standard the right here. has been set very high. Good, good. Um, well, again, congratulations. It is a fabulous book. Um, oh, it deserves a lot of attention. I hope our readers will all go buy a copy. Um, and thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for working with me to make it happen, too. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Of course. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Um, well, that was great. That was uh, Tressa McDonald Cotton with her great book, Lower Ed. Uh, just Libby and I in the studio now, catching up a little Here bit on current events. Um, so let's see. Uh, 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 Betsy DeVos hasn't said anything offensive or dumb in like three days, I think. Yeah, she so. kind of fell out of the news cycle. Uh since post the transgender bathroom guidance, which was something that the narrative around was was interesting and although the, the way wasn't she was the HBCU thing after that though was it oh you know 
I shouldn't comment on the news cycle. I literally did nothing last week but lie on my back and stare at the ceiling. Okay. So I can't, I can't tell you what didn't happen and what I just missed because I was sick. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what okay, you're talking right, about. Yeah. I was totally out yeah. of it that day. I think I was awake for yeah. like 20 minutes. But I do remember the HBC thing. That, by the way, has a really interesting backstory in that the whole HBCU executive order had an insane degree of fanfare leading up right. to it for what was like – and what he essentially signed I think was basically the same boilerplate version that like every president has signed. But they moved it to the White House. That's yeah. the thing. Which is a big right. – which is a big – it was a big ask yeah. and is like – we'll see how significant it is. Is it a big thing though? Does it – I mean – they. The HBCU like presidents and organizations I spoke to, like this mm-hmm. was important to them okay. from a symbolic – Right. Point of view that it was not going to be like buried six layers down in the education department. This White House is so disorganized that the honestly, you probably would be better off being in the education <laughs> department right now, I would say. Although, um, so, you again, know, this is, the, say? <clears throat> this is the same education department that can't manage to write a pre prepared press release about this event without, some, right. without somehow making it all about them and school choice and offending everyone and, and feeding into this. Sort of narrative it's, about we I need mean, a word for these like Trump unforced errors. I mean, yeah. it's it's stuff like which Betsy DeVos especially has committed just a huge number. Like I, it, it's not hard. It's almost I don't want to. I'm not gonna. This is gonna sound bad. There are a lot of like basic presidenting 101 mm, things that Trump right. is not very good at. There was the ho- this sort of to me is not nearly this level of offensive, but there was like the Holocaust statement that didn't yep. mention Jews. What this has in common to me is that this right. is like a basic easy thing yeah. to do that they somehow managed to screw up and then act like they did it on purpose. Right, well, because incompetence is bad enough, but incompetence, uh, like, uh, uh, married to belligerence and defensiveness is right. really bad because then you double down on everything and you're like, no, we meant to exclude the Jews. We meant that. Like, yeah. we, that was not a mistake because we don't make mistakes. Right. So now I have to explain to you why that was cool. Right, Then you, and then you end up in the same position, like, defending that, no, like, historically black colleges are a historical form of choice. Right, And yeah, it's no. just like... It's just not hard to do this right. right. And it does make you right. wonder. Like it does make you wonder what happens when something that is actually difficult. It might or be hard to do it right. It's not hard to do it inoffensively, right? You know, what I mean, yeah, so, right, to, right so, to high bar. There's a pretty yeah. low bar though for like I could I could sit down. I will give myself this challenge. I could sit down and write you a statement on like historically black colleges mm-hmm. and and Black History Month or whatever the actual yep. subject of this was, and like turn out four sentences of boilerplate that Obama could sign or Bush could sign, and like. It might not be the most eloquent thing that had ever happened, but it would pass muster. And, like, that is not a hard bar to hit. And it just – it sort of feeds into – I mean, clearly, clearly everyone – clearly, like, Betsy DeVos's perception in American culture is more or less set forever now. And I don't think it will ever change, I think – uh, you know, whatever whatever needed to happen, the worst thing could have happened from their perspectives. Everyone, you know, I mean, she's sort of become a, a, a there's an awareness of her in popular culture that I actually find a little disorienting mm-hmm. as an education person because all agree. of a sudden everyone knows who the secretary of education is, which it didn't, it's never been that way before. Right, right. And she, yeah, I mean, it is this, it's, it's not only this litany of mistakes, but it's all the same kind of mistakes. Like this, right. this is the same, in a different way, the same kind of mistake as her confirmation hearing where it's like, this is easy to do in a not offensive, not weird way. You managed to do it not that way. And then she, I mean, she went to a school and then told someone that the teachers were doing it wrong, uh, which again, like. There's also, I mean, the other thing is there's just no benefit of the doubt. And like any right. other education secretary who had done one of these things, I think there sure. would have been like some amount of, they're new, totally they're new to politics, they're new to national totally politics, true. there's a benefit of the doubt. And like the, the way that her confirmation process went and then the way her secretaryship has gone since then has like totally eliminated that. And so that also makes this a self-perpetuating cycle. So yeah. Because she is going to, like she's new to government. Right. She is going to do and say dumb things. Anybody would. But when, like, when somebody else writes a tweet that misspells right. Du Bois, uh, yeah, like, if, if, somehow, it, if it had like, happened to John King, would anyone have cared? Of course not. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure that John King or Arnie Duncan or Margaret Spellings or whomever like wouldn't have come out of a meeting with local school teachers and said something really weird about how they were like not teaching the right way. That's yeah. just strange judgment. I mean, I, it's kind of just makes you wonder. I don't know. I mean, I, I th- that in many ways, that was like the most alarming thing that I've read because it wasn't a prepared statement yeah. that somebody else did. It wasn't sort of being grilled in an adversarial thing. It's just w- I can't imagine the Secretary of Education just saying something like that. It just seemed really weird. Yeah. The other thing I would say from a policymaking perspective is that the result of all of this is that she is on a very tight leash. Um, to the mm. point where she is not – she had – she I watched her exchange at CPAC, which was really something to see where it was one of the, the CNN 
paid Trump mm-hmm. supporters having basically a conversation where she kept saying, tell me more about how great you are. And Betsy DeVos kept answering. Um, but she's really not being allowed to do even the kind of low profile speeches that are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Like she gives like she'll show up and give a 10 minute speech, but then there will be no question and answer period. Right. Um, and she'll be sort of like hustled out. And, you know, Arnie Duncan once catastrophically went off, got off the leash and, and said something sort of gaffy and weird, which was his, his white suburban mom suburban content. Parents thing, yeah. That was one yeah. in eight years. And it right. stuck with him to a degree that, you know, was, was to me having been in the audience pretty remarkable. Like, when is she going to give a normal 20-minute speech followed by a Q&A session mm. with an education group? Like, this this is actually Never. a policy advocacy problem right. for the administration, though. It's like she is not currently a credible messenger. And we don't have a higher ed person. so There we is no, no higher idea. ed person. Right. There is no staffing up. Like, this is a problem across the administration, the, like, inability to staff up, especially because they keep unwillingness losing to, staff. Right? They keep losing cabinet Are they kind of like, well, uh, why would we do that? Let's yeah, not do that. It's, it's bad. Like, there's not right now a deputy AG to lead the Russia investigation. There is, like, there is nothing like that at the yeah. education department. But, like, that's the problem you get into when you don't get around to confirming people to these jobs. We will see. So that happens. Interesting. Yeah. Um... <laughs> And then, okay, so am I right in saying The Americans premieres tomorrow night at 10 o'clock on FX, but you've already seen it? I have seen the first. That is such nonsense. I can't believe it. I have finally achieved my ultimate professional goal, which is I am enough Uh, of an an, an entertainment journalist to have been given access to the FX screener site. So I immediately quit being a writer. I've achieved all my goals. So how many have you seen? I've only seen, I've seen one and then the first 10 minutes because fun fact, the FX screener site doesn't work very well. uh, And it crashed halfway through. Oh, so it's a site. It's not like you get DVDs in the mail No, so they, some places do that. I think when I actually, a weird fact is I have almost always had advanced access to the Americans one way or another because uh, my roommate for the first two years it was on was the entertainment at the Atlantic, so I would watch it with him. Okay. Um, so I've always been in this exalted club. It's very good, I can say. The first episode um, is good. Yeah, our, we, we're, we're in the middle of our Vox chat about it, which is why I had to watch it early. So, oh, okay. so that'll so be ready to, to go up the morning after. Um, okay. But it is, yeah, it's, you know, best show on, it remains the best show on television. So it, it, it does, it, is the radically changed political context make it better or worse, or is it just what it was? It makes it different. Different? Okay. Um, which I'm sort of, I don't want it to. Like, yeah. I, I am very torn between, like, wanting the show to finally have the breakout year it deserves and just, like, bracing myself for the constant bad Russia takes we're going to get. But right. there is something about it. So I was watching it last um, Wednesday or Thursday, whatever whatever night it was that The Post published mm-hmm. the story about Sessions and the Russian ambassador. And this is true. I was watching it with my boyfriend. He saw the news alert. We actually had to pause the Americans so that we could read and discuss <coughs> this article about the attorney general lying about a meeting with the Russian or misleading the public about a right. meeting with Which the Russian ambassador uh, in the middle of the Americans. So it's it's really just going to be hard to get away from that. And I don't know what to – you know, it's it's not – the geopolitics of that show are not the reason to watch. Right. Um, but it is sort of – I think I've, I've – I'll probably – this is my one insight, so I'll just say it over and over again once a month. But I think uh, – I'm pretty sure I said it last time. But <laughs> I do always feel like uh, the fall of the Soviet Union hangs over the show right. yes. in a really important way that you know it's going to happen. And yes. so the fact that they – that these two people are sacrificing everything for what is but they don't know is a mm-hmm. doomed cause mm-hmm. – Ma- matters in the way that I experience, but but who knows? Maybe that was just twenty twenty. No, years I think that's so, okay. I think that's true, and I don't yeah. think that I don't think that changes because yeah. I mean, so much happens in the in the interim. Um, right. I am curious to see if the idea of like sympathetic Russians is harder for people to swallow this year than mm. it was than it was a year ago. I think probably it's not. I mean, the, the upside of this is like mm-hmm. it's not premiering now. We've all we've known these characters for five years right, right, essentially. Right. Yeah. So it's hard for me actually to put it in the context. I think if the show had been developed over the past two years and was premiering now, we yeah. would be having a really, really different conversation. I hope it does. I hope this is the like Breaking Bad I think, season five. Yeah, like, I think people, it everyone is. starts to watch it kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I people think it have is. caught up on Amazon. There's everything. also not a lot of like buzzy TV on right now. But it is going to start. It's not like right? competing with Game of Thrones isn't until later. Right. But they all come in. I was reading on Vox.com today yes. explaining to me why in April I will be drowning in good television because of the way the Emmys work. That is that is probably so, correct. The only show, I'm, other show I'm watching right now is Legion. Oh. Uh, also on FX. How is which, it? It's good. It's it's good. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's by the guy who does Fargo, Noah mm-hmm. Hawley. Um, so it's really well made. Um, but it's crazy. I mean, it's sort of. He's like a super powerful uh, but mentally unbalanced uh, mutant mm-hmm. from the X-Men universe, although they only allude to that. Yeah, I've read about this. I've not watched it yeah. yet. 
so it's, I mean, you watched the first episode and like my reaction was that was really good. I have no idea what just happened. Yeah. It's completely fragmented and nonlinear. It just kind of goes off in all these different directions. Like, great, but super weird. Um, and it's kind of gone there since then. So, oh, man. so I have one yeah. more pop culture okay. uh, bit of information, which it is March. I, I don't know what we're doing with our schedule because we've now mm-hmm. thrown it off a little bit. Right. But if we don't do a March Madness specific podcast. Oh, okay. It is very important for me that everyone knows that this is almost certainly going to be Northwestern's first year ever. Are they getting in? In the NCAA. So it doesn't tournament. matter how they do. Where are these where's the Big 10 tournament? Is it they uh, It's win- here. It's here. I'm oh. going to go. I'm going to try and go on Thursday night. Okay. Um their record is good enough and honestly the story is good enough that I think uh, okay. people at this point would really yeah. be surprised. I mean, they may get a play in game. I have not read the like full gaming out mm-hmm. of it. I don't know if it's certain that they will definitely be in or if they're going to be one of the like what's first four. Um 21 and something. It's the most wins we've had in any season since 1968. It is the first Big Ten winning season we've had, I think, since 1968. That seems like, yeah. The, like, if you really want to read about something depressing, read about the unbroken 50-year futility. You told me they were the only team that's never made the tournament or one of the only... There aren't that many. We are certainly the only one that's been around the whole time. We are certainly the only other, like, football-wise, we are not a great school. We're a major-ish school. We go to bowl games. Like, Mm, you know, we're we're in the hunt once in a while. Um, Certainly the only school of that caliber that that has Certainly no one has been longer, I assume, that could have gone. So the important thing for me is that as soon as we're in, we're guaranteed to win the inside higher ed bracket based on APR and graduation rates. Oh, right. (laughs) So I have been awaiting this moment for my life. Wait, but doesn't Ivy School get sometimes doesn't harvard get in every now and then yeah but northwestern's is actually is actually the best oh is it okay. uh, or like one number one or two gotcha. so it's it's quite good uh i'm i'm living for this moment and many others you better so. hope they don't change the rankings method just to i boost, know they use totally... the page views this year <laughs> doug and scott like, if you're listening please don't they'll be like well, okay we can't do the northwest craziness change so, it yeah i hope i hope that in, in a month we were discussing how we were the improbable cinderella success story and now i have like more conflicting feelings about college sports than i did All right, well we'll have before, to figure it out because so. i think we delayed this a little bit. Yeah, so we, we usually yeah. do our March, our college yeah. sports March podcast, okay. but now we're in March already. So just in case, I want okay. to get that Well, just out in there. case, either we'll talk about it next time or go Wildcats. Um, well deserved. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot again. Thanks to Trusty for coming on the show. Thanks to John and our great crew here at New America. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.